Welcome to Ideas with Lex, a podcast to help you become that go-to person who can think on their feet or even invent that side hustle project that brings in cash and kudos. G'day guys, it's Nils Vesk and I am so excited about today's guest. We have Mark Hocknell, who is an incredible consultant who, um, I, when I think of Mark, I think of, if you want to know how to make your sales really work, how to understand what your customer is really thinking and how to create, create a great portfolio of customers, um, Mark's your man. So Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Nils, thank you so much for having me. I'm Really looking forward to having this chat. <laughs> so um, I, I, one of the things that I wanted to pick Mark's brain about today is a lot of obviously about customers, but more so about how this Corona economy that's been going down has changed the world for the customer and, and, and some of the best ways that we can actually reconnect with the customer. Um, and I know that's one thing that, you know, you're really, really strong at. Um, Mark, what do you think has changed most for a cut? You know, I mean, obviously, obviously, different customers are going to have different things. But you know, if you look at some top notes, what would be some of those major changes that are going through for customers right now? Well, as we know, our customers are really in a state of flux most of the time. I mean, one one of the things we need to do when we think about our customers is not think about the average customer, because we tend to, I think, overgeneralize. And one of the things we need to do with customers is unpack them and really understand that there are different customer groups, different customers who might have same demographics or even a psychographic profile, for example, can even behave in different ways based on their values. So one of the things I think that's been highlighted through uh, this pandemic that we're still going through is the whole people's values are displayed in their behaviors. And that's one of the key things we need to look at when we look at our customers we might have uh, the standard marketing approaches to look at demographics of customers and put them into personas and groups like that. But people make decisions based on their values and their values then define how they behave. And what we've seen in, within the coronavirus pandemic is that people's behaviors have really been put on steroids and some people have gone uh, wild. And we've seen that a lot in the media in the US uh, some of the things that are going on over there are just unbelievable given the the environment that the, everybody is in. And rather than banding together, they're really pulling apart. And even with, um, in, in Australia, we're seeing a lot of the panic buying at various times. And that's demonstrating people's values in terms of whether they're there for the collective good or whether they're there for themselves. And it just demonstrates that People make decisions, and when I talk about decisions, particularly with customers, it's, it's how they behave, but it's how they buy and how they provide advocacy. So let's put mm. all that stuff on steroids. And the other thing, Nils, uh, that I've observed uh, with some ire, if you like, um, through this pandemic and the behavior of people is that for, you know, marketing, and sales and marketing has been around in its current form for about 200 years, started at the beginning in the industrial age. And one of the things I talk about is our customers have really changed in the last 10 or 15 years, particularly in their environment. In other words, customers have become buyers rather than people that were sold to. But the other thing is that 
what we know about our customers now has also changed. In other words, in the last couple of hundred years, most sales and marketing approaches uh, will teach you that customers are rational. And if you use a nice logical set of data and information, you will convince the customer. Yet what we know now through more recent studies, probably in the last 10, maybe 15 years again, in terms of neuroscience, we know that our customers are essentially irrational in the way that they make decisions. Mm, mm, mm. Again, in the pandemic, this irrationality being played out by people all over everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I just want to kind of come in with a couple of thoughts on that one because you're so, so true when you talk about how values have changed. Um, you know, I, I, I know one of the big things we talk about is the insights ladder or, um, you know, the different eight different levels of how we can really understand what our customers are thinking. And the one that we put up sort of the, the second from the top is, is values. And I was actually just having a chat with a, a client just before this little session and the, the couple of values that are really popping up right now are confidence, certainty, and security. And, um, you know, it's like what that means is for a, a business, whether you're in a, a, a sort of a service business or a product business is how do you demonstrate that now? How do you add more value around here's the certainty is here's the, the confidence here's, here's how we've minimized the risk. And, you know, I was saying, well, you know, it might be for some businesses it might be, well, well let's have 100% money back guarantee, no questions asked. Or um, if I was in a service-based industry, we're going to, to give certainty that we are going to continue to consult with you over and beyond our scope of services to make sure you get to that final result. Like there's some of the things that create obviously opportunities for people. And as you said, when the values change, then the aspirations change, what people are experiencing changing, what they need, what they think, what they feel, and most importantly, what they behave. That, that's such, and I loved your line that, um, you know, it's, it's buyers who are buying or customers who are buying now versus being, being sold to uh, that, that that's a, such a, a powerful point so um when you talk about this concept of understanding um customer values uh and and i know you know traditional researchers will go oh well, we can just go out there and ask them how do you sort of mm. what would you suggest how do you go about finding what a customer is valuing now i mean it's a tricky thing what what, what do you guys normally do um, so we use a couple of models around how we unpack that. And the, the key thing is if you go and ask your customers, again, I'm a bit of a fan of neuroscience and I'm, I'm reading all the stuff that I can get on that. And the, the, the science is still developing, but the research uh, is, is profound. And the customers are in control. However, uh, when you go, there's a big difference between doing research on your customers. And I often find this with organizations I work when they are running a voice of the customer program, for example, they will say, well, our customers are telling us this. And you go, well, how are they actually behaving? Because what people say they will do or what say that they value is often very different to what they actually do. So the behavior and what they actually profess is, is very different. So there's a couple of things that we need to do. And one is recognize that we can't do a piece of research and then find the answer. It's an iterative process. And like anything in innovation or learning, we have to build a learning capability inside organizations. 
So what I'll typically do is we start off using a customer-centric uh, business model. And therefore, most organizations are coming from a product-centric and bolting on some customer-centric stuff. So if you come at it from a customer-centric perspective, you really want to understand your different types of customers. And that starts off with different groups of customers. And we often find those by observing in the customer portfolio how they're actually behaving. Then when you've done that, I use a value model. And this really unpacks a bit of the complexity, if you like, around uh, what it is that customers value. So for example, um, how customers perceive value is based on um, a combination of two things. One is the perceived value that I get. And I, I'm emphasizing the word perceived <clears throat> because it's often not uh, factual. It's the customer's perception is the thing that drives value against or over the costs or the sacrifices they have to make. So those two things go together in terms of that. Then when you look at value, you can look at a range of value it can come from a whole lot of different areas. It could be from um, the amount of effort I have to take to do the process, or as you're saying, the amount of confidence I have in the organization before, or the certainty about the service or the delivery or the security that's in it. And those things are important now. And um, up here in Queensland, I've been to a few restaurants in the last week as we've been on a, um, restaurants have opened up, we've done a bit of a road trip. And it, it surprised me that we ain't, we ain't in a couple of restaurants where those restaurants had all the signs up about social distancing, but the way that the people inside the store were behaving and the staff, they weren't really, didn't really give us a confidence mm -hmm. that things were being done properly. And yet there would be other uh, restaurants or cafes that we attended that they actually had the system in place, they had the process in place, they had the everything, in, you know, people distanced, all that sort of stuff. And it you just gave you more confidence being in that environment than not being in that environment. So it's things that we observe mm, mm -hmm. that drives that. Can, can, I, can I come back to a couple of those things? Um, one of the things that really, you know, I really can resonate with is the concept of perceived value. And um, for the listeners out there, they might know this story, but um, I've got an English wife it comes right, right up and uh, I'm always joking that she's sort of related to the queen, but um, that's kind of an interesting thing because if you were to have, say, for example, endorsement, um, you know, for those that may have ever seen it, but you'll have a, as used or it's a, pro a professional endorsement from the queen or as used by her majesty, Queen Elizabeth. And um, so you get a, you can get a special mark and it's, it's a, you know, it's a sense of prestige, but it increases the perceived value uh, incredibly. And it reminds me of a story. I think it was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it might've been uh, one of the, one of the kings or one of the tsars of Russia who they were going through a bit of a, a kind of food crisis and they had these things called potatoes, but no one liked to eat potatoes, um, even though they were actually fairly healthy and good and they needed to sort of diversify because everyone was just eating wheat as a carbohydrate, even though they probably wouldn't have known they were carbohydrates. So what he did is um, apparently, I can't remember which, which you know, tsar it was, but apparently said, right, let's get these potatoes and we're going to start growing them. And I want you to, to um, we're going to put some guards there, but don't guard them too well. And so the word got out that 
you know, there were these royal potatoes being grown in the royal gardens. And um, so obviously people then went, went to go to steal them. So it was like royal potatoes. And that was apparently one of the big things that helped bring potatoes back into, in, into the sort of the diet um, for those sort of things. I don't know if you've heard that story, but just a whole concept of perceived value. Um, what about what, so yeah, can you, can you give us a little bit more about explaining about that perceived value? How do we, how do we understand that more or, or, you know, how can we turn that up or exaggerate, you know, embellish it or, or, or work with it? So the, the one example I use on perceived value, um, I'll share with you just a moment, but the other thing I just want to emphasize before we move on to that is that once we've created this value map, which is we find all the levers that go into perceived value and they will come from a whole range of different areas. And then we have the costs or the sacrifices that customers make, which then gives them the overall value that they get from it. One of the things we need to do is measure each one of those elements. So we can still research customers and talk to them, but if we can also then measure these elements and which ones are more important, over time we can create a much more uh, reliable understanding about what it is that customers value and mm. what behaviors that we need to look for within our particular customers. But there's one example um, I use, and there's, there's dozens, but this is one of my favorites. This is where I first learned the, the idea that it was a customer's perception that was paramount more than anything else. And uh, it was, it was a, a couple of decades ago and I was working in a financial services group and we had a, a contact center, a few hundred people answering calls, that sort of stuff. And um, we were monitoring, we had all the data and we knew that, uh, you know, probably 90% of our calls were being answered inside 60 seconds. But the organization was doing research with customers and customers were saying they were waiting far too long to get their calls answered in the contact center. So in the contact center, we would sit there and go, well, you know, the customer's wrong, you know, we've got the data. <laughs> But you can't tell the customer that they're wrong. You can't even tell the corporate people that are doing customer research saying, hey, you guys are wrong. What you had to do then was say, okay, so the customer perceives this as being incorrect, as being a particular situation. So we changed one thing and one thing only. And that was, as the call came into the queue, normally you'd say have a call, you'd have a response that said, yeah, your report call is important to us, we'll be with you shortly. That's something like that. We just changed it to, um, Thank you for your call. It's important to us. We get to most of our customers within a minute. We'll be with you shortly. Mm. Mm. The next time, the, which because corporate did about there's about a three monthly uh, review of all of the data and customer research. The following set of research that came in three months later, customers were very happy with the with how the calls were being answered. Operationally, nothing changed. Mm -hmm. Changed in the measures. What we did was change the customer's perception about how and when their call was being answered. So sitting on a call waiting 60 seconds can feel like three minutes to some people. But when we implanted it in their minds that it was actually only a minute and that was truth, it wasn't, wasn't spin, it was true, uh, then we could then the customer's perception changed about what was going on. Mm. And, and that also sort of brings to my mind that the concept of information that usually when people are informed quickly 
and upfront and transparently about a situation that then they're okay with it. It's like people don't like the unknown. And remember, we've done lots of work with um, a lot of infrastructure organizations and um, road organizations like Vic Roads, you know, um, who look after all of the roads in other states in Australia. And one of the one of the things that we looked at there was, you know, when you have those signs that go break down ahead, um, expect delay, at least that gives you a sense of, oh, okay, there's something that's gone wrong rather than why are we waiting there? And it, it definitely helps in terms of, um, you know, that reaction that we can get from not knowing what's going on there. Uh, that's a very good, very good story to explain. So come back to this, this formula because I'm, I'm, I've got, so I've got perceived value and then we've got the levers that lead to that. And then we're dividing that by um, the costs or the number of sacrifices made is this, can you tell us a little bit more around, yeah, how does that, how does that work out? Well, that's the customer's perception of the overall value perception of value comes from uh, what they believe they're getting the benefits are, and then also what they think the sacrifices are or the cost of something. So one person might think that uh, a particular price for something is excellent. I'm getting wonderful value from it. Others may not. So the price is not necessarily uh, the only cost. The other costs can be things in terms of um, the overall experience, how difficult it was. Uh, there's a lot of research out there now that shows that for customers, one of the key drivers for value is just to make things easy. And the more barriers, mm. and friction and effort we put into it for the customer, uh, the less value they perceive, regardless of the price. So price, a lot of organizations that are product centric think that customers buy on price. And we've almost trained customers to do that over the last hundred years or so. But the reality is uh, it's about a perception of the overall thing. And we have to understand in, in each different context, there's a different perception of um, value and what that benefit is to us. But it's a, it's a way up of the two, uh, the perceived benefits, over the perceived costs or sacrifices I have to make. And I use the term sacrifices because uh, if I invest half an hour of my time into it, that's a sacrifice that I've made. It hasn't actually cost me anything in terms of uh, monetary terms, but it's a sacrifice. It's time, it's effort. It's, there's, a, there's a sacrifice that we make to actually receive something. And in any service or product environment that we have when we're interacting with our customers, there is this trade-off between value and cost or sacrifice. And that then leads us to the overall perception of value. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to come in with some, some sort of uh, maybe a, a question around this, because this is, this is perfect. Because what, what, I'm, what I'm thinking for our audience now, a lot of people are going, right, we, we want to reinvent but where do we reinvent? Um, you're almost sort of saying it just by talking about these costs and sacrifices is that the first, there's one part which is around perceived value. So where are people perhaps misperceiving our value or what things could we do to, to help change someone's perception? So as you said, it might be in information, it might be in, in, in the time, but then also around, okay, well, what do people, what are people feeling that is a sacrifice that they're doing now that they weren't doing uh, 12, you know, 12 months ago, pre Corona economy. Um, and I think that's where we can find these giant insights because, you know, a lot of people, 
in business are just going, we just want to go back to business as usual, but no, you can't do that because, you know, people are, people have got different, as you said, um, there's different costs to doing business now, but more importantly, they've got to make a sacrifice. So even though they might be working from home, when you think, well, they'll, they'll be just in front of the computer. Well, that's, that's actually going to be more of a sacrifice because they've got to do, let's say I've gone, well, we'll just do a, a voice sales call or something. That's another sacrifice that someone has to do of 30 minutes sitting in front of the, the computer when they might actually prefer to be out, you know, walking with their kids or walking a dog to get their fresh air. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that's, that's really good. Can, can we come back to this concept then of, of some of these other levers that relate to the perceived value? Cause you were mentioning some of those, are there any other sort of clear ways that people can start to think, what are these levers of perceived value? There's a, yeah. So um, I've got a model called the customer value map and it's available for free on my website and I can, we can provide that link to everyone because it's often difficult to try and describe models uh, yes. in this context. But if you think about it on the, on the left, far left hand side, we've got the overall perception of customer value and mm-hmm. two areas that go into that is perceived costs and the perceived benefits. So if we go down the perceived benefits side of it, then benefits can come in many different ways. Again, there's a gap between when organizations communicate what they do. So we do these things, but then there's a benefit that comes to the customer. So think about it in those two levels. These are the functions that we provide and they then deliver value to the customer. And those things then roll up. And they can be in, they will often have, as you said before, Nils, themes like confidence and certainty and security. And there can be key themes in that, but those three elements of value can mean different things then to different customers within an organizational context. Like we just said, with a, with a cafe or a restaurant, confidence and security and certainty can be very different to then, to a transport example, where the transport people are providing some confidence and certainty to people that the information they're receiving kilometers ahead tells them that there's an event that's occurred before that could cause them some delays. It's still the same attribute, but it's used, it's perceived by the customer in a different way. So what we need to do is figure out what those things are. So what we often do is work from what are the functions or the things that you do that you deliver? And then you take, well, what do the customers actually get from that? And then that's one of those elements um, that lead towards value. So in the model I've got that, that's in the book, there are, there's an example in there with where there are four additional levers that feed into perceived benefits. What we need to do once we've figured out what they are for each of those customer groups that we have is then understand, well, out of those four, what's the one that's the most important? And we can only do that by measuring. So we can measure that and we can also then, even if we do are doing customer research, the customer research, instead of being quite open, it can actually say, okay, we find that uh, these are the four things that are important to our customers. What's the one that's most important to you? And then what's the least important? And then we can find these areas where if there's a value map here with four uh, levers in it that lead to perceived benefits, we might find that the third one, will give us a 50% lift overall. So that's where we can fine tune our efforts. Mm, mm. Can I, can I um, come in with a, um, 
like a, let's call it a piggyback uh, suggestion for, for some of our listeners. So you might be going, well, what, what are some ways that we can test or measure this? Um, I'm a big fan, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, Mark, we've spoken about this before, about the idea of building landing pages um, or, you know, test things. So I always say, let's, let's test it before we even build it. But say, for example, um, when you're trying to work out which one of these things people value the most, we could look at creating a, a, you know, a, a product that hasn't been built yet or a service that hasn't been built yet. And we identify those four or five different core components that we think that they've got value. And we can look at either a different weighting of one or one has more of it, one has more copy that relates to it or, or more details on it. And, and it's got more of that um, that sort of solution centricity, so to speak. And then we can, we can use that to see how people are responding. So if 30% are responding to, you know, option B and 20% to option C and 80% to option D, and then we can go, aha, cool. That's giving us some things, you know, and so that, that way we can, we can start to get an assessment before we might actually have the customers. Cause I know there's a number of our, our, customer, our listeners, audience who, who may not have a existing relationship with these customers because they're trying to build something new. Um, yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. A very good, very good way of thinking about those different things. Now, um, it's, also sorry, very good, it's also a very good way of, of just even building a discipline in the organisation, which is about learning. Because what you're describing is a situation where we think these things are important or valuable to customers. Let's find out. And it's not necessarily asking them, it's actually getting them to make a choice or a decision. Because when customers buy from us or they provide us positive word of mouth or advocacy, it's a decision that they make. And the decision um, center in, the, in our brains as humans is connected to memory and emotion. And one of the things that happens, which is one of those disconnects we're actually talking about is that when people say, why did you make a decision to buy this or to do this? They often will then switch out of the emotional and the memory component of their brain and switch over to their frontal cortex and give us a rational reason why. And often that rational reason is what they think we want to hear or even what we think the reason was for our decision. But when mm. we observe people's behaviors, which we do on those landing page examples that you had, we actually are seeing then their decision-making process playing out in front of us. And that's far more valuable than the words we use as humans because it's actually describing, this is what I would do, or this is what's resonating with me, or this landing page with these words on it means more to me, and therefore I'm gonna click. And that decision to click is driven from the center of decision-making, which is memory and, and emotion. Mm, oh, that's yeah, so well put. And I know we, we, we think along the same lines that we, we often have a saying that um, people are bad at predicting, but good at behaving. And that's so, you know, and, and that, that was a very good example of how when, um, when we think about the temporal lobe, which is where we store, I call them the Polaroids and the, the movies of what's going yeah. on, um, as yeah. you said, affects such a big decision. But as soon as you shift into why did you make that decision? Yet we drop the we drop that emotional kind of um, rationale, and then we try and explain it. So we get false information. We get we get false data. Um, it was interesting in another episode that's going to be coming up. Um, I just interviewed an awesome behavioural psychologist by the name of Alison Hill. You might be familiar with her. Um, she's based up in 
Queensland as well. Yeah. Uh, they work with um, a business called Pragmatic Thinking. One of the things that she shared that was just so well, she said, is whenever we're making, um, whenever we don't know something, we've got an assumption, we start to all make up a story in our mind. And yeah. then he said that point about if we can at least get, you know, the data or the research, then we're not making something up. And, you know, especially right now, as, as we all know, the corona economy, the last thing we want to do is is to go out there guessing and go, oh, no, I think they're doing that well. Okay, well, that, that you know, that's an assumption that we need to test. Um, one of the things we often say is that we want to test our riskiest assumptions first. And once we've tested it, we go, okay, great, we can do that. And as you said, um, it is quite an iterative process because we're always trying to look at, um, you know, how we go about increasing and changing things. So what I'm, what I'm kind of curious is, um, so there'll be, I'm sure listeners that are familiar with the concept of demographics, which is age, uh, career, you know, location, geography. Um, some might be a little bit more also aware of the concept of psychographics um, in terms of, you know, um, how people, you know, attitudes and the sort. When you talk about perceived value, so I'm trying to think about, you know, mapping these things out. Do you, would you, so if you're trying to look at your customers, um, you've got a bit of a demographic, you've got a psychographic, how do you fit this kind of, um, the, the sort of the value equation in that? Do you have like a score or how would you, you know, so if, if let me just put this in a context. So let's say I'm trying to map out what people are thinking. I want to do some tests. What would you, how would you package that now? Like your dashboard for potential customers, would it be those three things, psychographics, demographics and value, or is it something else? I try and dig into uh, more around the value in terms of really what is driving value. And, um, and I'm trying to, uh, when I do that, let me, I want to provide a couple of examples so that we can get away from uh, value being a generic word that isn't making any sense. So for example, where I first learned this when I was working in financial services and I was tasked with putting in a customer relationship management system across the whole organization. So it was a couple of million customers, 5,000 staff. It was a pretty big deal. So I started to first look at the customers because um, as it was at the time, the organization operated in silos. So they all had their own individual groups of customers. And when we actually looked at the combination of all customers, who we thought were the most valuable customers ended up being, uh, most cases, not the, not the most valuable customers. So there's a couple of things in that. And then that sort of links me back to, I thought I had what you were describing uh, before, what you were just, what you were discussing about, um, the, uh, the almost a confirmation bias when one of the things that we do need to have is this experimental mindset so that we can go and find things out rather than I, I see most uh, businesses and, and leaders think, okay, I'm looking at my customers. This is what I think they value. And then they go to seek to prove that rather than trying to find out. In other words, they get this, they, they use, we've all got a confirmation bias. So we start looking for every piece of information that tells me, the assumption I made was correct rather than testing if it is correct or not. And that's that experimental mindset is the key thing. So we took this experimental mindset in, in this financial services group and we discovered that there was a small portion of customers. It was only about 18% that 
that were exceptionally higher value than all the other customers. And that value came in, in two sources for the business. And that was in customer lifetime value. And that looks at retention and repurchase rates. And also then it looked in the rate of advocacy. In other words, the amount of positive word of mouth they were providing. What we found then that those customers who stayed longer, so for example, um, in this financial services group, there was three lines of business. There was uh, a banking insurance and like a wealth management services, which included superannuation investments and all that sort of stuff. A customer um, that might just buy insurance products had an average retention rate of about 80%, which meant that you, if you wanted to maintain the same number of customers each year, you need to get another 20% every year because you were losing 20% each year. And it was the same in banking and the same in wealth management. But what we found was with customers that were engaged with the brand, with at least two or three of those lines of business, the retention rate went up into the high 90s. And that retention rate then, when you look at customer lifetime value, which is based on the future value of that customer over time, it became, those customers became three or four times more valuable than a single line of business customer. So what we did was, uh, we looked more for those attributes of those customers that were behaving that way. Another example, that's where I first learned it and the stories in the Profit by Design book. Um, mm -hmm. and you can get the first couple of chapters for free from the website, so that story's in there. But another example, um, not uh, quite recently worked with an organization that provides software for builders. So these are people who build houses or do major renovations or they build, put in pools that are like major contractors for building. And they're small to medium sized businesses normally. And uh, these guys created the software package because the owner was a builder and they recognized that there was problems that builders needed to sort out that couldn't be resolved with a typical financial package like Myob or Zero or something. They needed a combination of things that made it work for builders. Uh, and one of the things, for example, was you needed to have um, a link into your suppliers coming into your system so that if there was changes in pricing for products and supplies, that was actually fed into the job rather than quoting for a job now, delivering it in eight months time and finding that all the margin on the job was eroded on the way through because the suppliers prices changed. So building a system that did that. And they had a bunch of customers, not a lot, but a, a few a, was enough for the business but there was a few there that was enough for us to analyze and we say, well, why is this customer a good customer? Why is this customer not a particularly good customer? And what we discovered was that there was, um, there was a bunch of builders. And let's just say that they were getting towards the latter end of their career in building. <laughs> and and they, they wanted the software just to functionally do the job, right? So this is just make my life a little bit easier. Uh, by using this one system. And then there was another group of customers who were probably in that early or middle stage of their career as a builder, and they wanted to grow their business. And this tool really empowered them to do that. So this business then realized that um, the network of builders all talked to each other. So if you spoke to some of those builders that were just using as a functional tool, what they would say is, I wouldn't particularly recommend this product. It's okay for me, but you know, there's probably better ones out there. So you're getting no positive word of mouth. 
but to this other group of custom, uh, customers and builders that were into growing their business, when they saw how this tool could help them grow their business, they told them all their mates. So what we needed to do was find more customers that were interested in growing their business and using this tool to do that. And in that way, the customer would get excellent value from the product itself. In other words, it would enable growth and it would enable them to deliver projects predictably with a proven margin, manage supplier costs, all that sort of stuff. And it allowed these builders to grow and reduce the risk of insolvency for them. It did a, it a whole range of things just by better management of the business by using the software tool. So, and in doing that then, what they did was they looked for the attribute within the customer, the builder, who wants to grow your business. And as over time, they migrated their customer portfolio to more customers, more builders that wanting to grow. And that then started to happen organically because those people were telling more of their mates that this was a tool to use to grow your business and less of the ones that just wanted to sit on it and use the basic functions. So that's, mm. how, that's how value is then displayed in behaviors. Mm, mm. Flows into value for the organization. So there's a two way value exchange that I often talk about. And that's where our biggest challenge in all organizations and businesses is to find what is the absolute value that our customers get and what are the value, what's the optimal value that we then get from those customers? Because there has to be that two way street. But when you find that optimal two way value exchange, customers get the value and the business gets value from the customers, it's a symbiotic thing that really just drives growth. Mm, mm. Wow, that's a really good story to illustrate that. Um, one of the things that sort of pops up for me, Mark, is you were talking about the, earlier on, you spoke about the concept of the average customer. And for our listeners, I'm sure you can now kind of understand that, well, if we had just gone with that, you know, our average, the average builder is blah, 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 blah then we could have ended up with, you know, as you said, a builder that was more towards the end of their career. And, you know, but as you said, it's only a one-way value exchange and they're not really helping us out. We're helping them, but only a certain amount. But then once you start to go, actually, let's look at, you know, who are these people and what do they really need? Or, you know, that just that small little distinction Say well, actually, this is this is not the average customer. This is the right customer that we want, where they're going to get the most value, and we're going to get the most value um, for people as well. Really, really good example of that. And we often often talk about um, in terms of product design, when you're going to create a product or even a service per se, is is not to never to really go to the average, but actually look at the extreme. So look at yeah. your worst customer and your best customer um, because you know the reality is the average customer will get taken care of but it's it's being able to understand you know those those extremes that are so important what yeah. i'd what i'd love to do oh sorry um, oh, yeah, that's one of those things about flaws of averages <clears throat> pardon me um we know that um we know that most most businesses when i say you know what probably 20% of your customers are delivering 80% of the value to your business. They go, yeah, we've heard of Pareto's principle. And I say then, why, why would you have 80% of your customers not contributing much value? And you sort of go, well, you get caught up in a situation where you've been providing service to these customers, so you keep on doing it. 
they give you a trickle of cash flow and therefore that seems good. But the, the converse to that is this, is that when you've got 20% of customers that are getting the value that you deliver and 80% that are so-so, that'll be reflected in word of mouth as well. In other words, 20% of customers will say, hey, these guys are really good. 80% will go, yeah, you know, they're okay. And what we need these days, because customers are in are the buyers, they're the ones that are in the making the decisions. They're the ones that buy. You can't sell to customers anymore. Customers are highly sales resistant. So what we need is we actually need 80% at least of our customers all saying, these people are great. And this is, we love what they do because we need them to promote uh, our services and what we do. Mm. Oh, that's so well put. Um, what I'd love to do is I'm just sort of mindful of our, our time for our listeners. So I just sort of want to start to wind up maybe with one last question. And um, it's kind of a bigger question, but it's, it's it, let's say, uh, so we've got a multitude of different businesses, um, listeners. We've got some people who might have a small business. We've got some people who might be in a bigger corporate uh, type role. But if, from your perspective, if they were to go about reinventing um, something in their business, it might be we're going to reinvent a new product. Um, I've got a feeling that you're going to suggest that we, we, we start by reinventing how we relate to our customers. Um, if you were just to say, you know, here's the seven or six things that you should do, what, what would those things be so that people can get that in mind before they come and check out your book? What a great question. Um, okay, so I think one of the things that we need to, when we talk about reinvention, um, I would say one of the first things we need to do in reinvention is, and this is not disparaging towards accountants in any way, but most of us look to our businesses in terms of profit and loss. So we go, okay, here's the, here's the income, here is the cash flow, here's our expenses, things are tight now. What do we do? Well, we've got to still try and make a, make a nice margin. And we tend to look at that from those two equations. And the line on the P&L sheet where the money comes in is typically called sales. I would say reinvent your perception of what sales is. Because sales is not um, coming from an individual that buys something once. Sales is coming from customers that are getting value from you. Either they're getting value from you now and they're using and repurchasing or they're buying it once to experiment. Okay. So that's, that's one element mm -hmm. of sales. The other element of sales is people that have made decisions to purchase or to engage with you because other people are saying that they should. In other words, they're getting the social proof and the recommendations from others. <coughs> so reinvent how you look at the line called sales on the P&L sheet, because in behind it, what's driving value is the construct of your customer portfolio, how your customers are interacting with you. So Nils, I've even applied this same uh, method to non-profit organizations as well as government organizations. And even when you look at it from a government perspective and government say, well, our customers are a monopoly, true, but if you deliver value in different ways for them, one of the things that you can do is you can reduce the cost to serve those customers and increase the value that they get. And even understanding how those costs are driven for your organization. So trying to look at sales in terms of what's in behind it, rather than just looking at it as the, 
as the, as the cash flow that comes in. There's a lot of customer behavior and insight and decision-making that takes place behind the scenes that produces that number. We need to really understand that. And that's how we can reinvent the business because that then will shift us onto the next point of really looking at what is the makeup of our customer portfolio. Mm, mm. And we then, so some customers you have, if you've got a typical business where 80% are getting the value that you're getting and, eight, and 20% are, I should say, and 80% are sort of somewhere in the middle there. Um, the idea is not to sack all those customers. The idea is more to re-engineer how you interact with those customers. So even if you're, if they're loss making customers now, how do you change how you interact with them so they become either cost neutral or even just mildly profitable? Now, even just doing that increases the value of the business overall. And if you can do it in a way that still delivers value for the customer, you might even create an advocate or two, or you might even at least stop those customers being detractors, giving you negative word of mouth. So even if you have got customers that aren't particularly profitable, if you can get them into neutral, and even if you can get the word of mouth into neutral, that less detractor or negative word of mouth can also then improve the amount of customers that are coming in making those decisions to engage. Um, so I'd still, there's a couple of key things in there, but the key thing is to focus on that customer portfolio and to change the way that we're looking at our business. Our businesses aren't driven by our products and services are actually driven by the decisions that customers are making. And we understand what those decisions are, how the value and the perception of value drives that decision-making. Then we can tailor how we interact with those customers to get them to engage with us. And the goal with that is not actually creating a sale, but be creating a lifetime advocate of what we do. Mm. Wow, that's really, really, really well put there, Mark. Um, I can't use that word too many times, can I? Really, really, really. <laughs> what I love about that, it just, just brings to, to light something that we've been doing recently. When you're talking about re-engineering re old customers yep. um, and how you interact with them. And, you know, we've, our own business ideas with Lex has gone through um, a fair few reinventions over the years. And I realised that actually there were some, there were some great customers in the past who knew us for, you know, a particular type of innovation or a particular type of service that we did. And, yep. you know, it's so easy, so easy to sort of forget about the past and get obsessed about, oh, I've got to get new customers, new customers. I said, well, yep. actually they've got a perception. They've got a story about who we were and what we did and that's okay but we can also change that perception and how we interact with them so it might not sound very high tech actually it's probably the most low tech we've ever done before but we've got we call it the yellow the yellow letter series and we basically are just doing an old school um yellow letter um mail out that's going to customers just you know because everyone's so digital at the moment and just explaining you know, how you're going, um, just wanted to let you know what's been happening over the last few years. You know, we're going through this reinvention change and, you know, it was just, just starting a conversation um, to help start change the perception of to what, you know, how they used to interact with us and how we're interacting with them. But um, boy, we could, we could talk forever. Um, so what I wanted to do is just wind up by, telling our listeners again by this awesome book that Mark has written. It's called Profit by Design, How to Build a Customer Portfolio Full of Profitable Promoters. 
it's got an incredible number of, he's got, I think 17 or so bonus templates in there. Um, It's, it's a a great book um, that I'm going to be making sure I get even more copies of because I found that there is some, you know, as you've probably noticed from this this conversation today, Mark's got an absolute great depth of data to back up what he does. I know there's a lot of academics who absolutely froth at uh, the stuff that Mark's Mark's doing. You can check out Mark's website, uh, markhocknell.com. That's H-O-C-K-N-E-L-L.com. That's, did I get that one right? Yeah. Perfect. Yep. Um, we'll have some, some links to some of his things. There is also, uh, I think Mark spoke about a couple of free chapters and then that core model there. But um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for Mark. Really appreciate it. Hope um, our listeners also do make sure you tell us what you like about it, um, what you want to hear next and um, reach out to Mark to find out how he can help you to um, you know, really re-engineer or reinvent the profits that you're doing through this concept of sales. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Nils. It's been great fun. So that's it from this episode, but be sure to subscribe for more strategies on how to turn ideas into income. And please rate and review us so that we can deliver the goods next time.